You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Episode 35. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. Welcome to the show where we pick at the news along the highway of American history and culture and entertainment and such and so on. And today we're going to talk about football. The first weekend of football, especially college football, was uh, this past week. And uh, Thomas' team played, my team played. That'd be uh, the Texas Longhorns and the A&M Aggies, respectively. And, of course, all the other teams played. And then we have the big drama of Colin Kaepernick, the football player, the former football player, because I don't think he's really playing right now, who is like just a hangnail and will not go away. And, of course, you got Nike in there who is uh, utilizing Colin Kaepernick's name and notoriety to sell shoes. Thomas, start us off. What do you think? So uh, how about them Longhorns, huh? They they had one really good quarter. <laughs> we won at least one of those quarters. We totally won that quarter. Uh, we may have lost the other quarters, uh, but we won at least one of the quarters. It was, it was very sad. Uh, UT is playing a team where a player had just died and the coach had been suspended. Do you think if there was ever a time when you could beat a football team, It'd be when they are under fire, so to speak, from the media and the press. But um, they they played for the their lost compatriot, their lost teammate, and they played with heart. And you got to give them credit, but they won, and it broke my heart because I really wanted UT to win because we have this new magical coach, and the hope was that with the new magical coach, we would start winning, and we didn't. <laughs> so um i will say though a&m has a new style of football that i think will f- uh, fit them very well and we're not going to do a lot of play-by-play don't worry for those of you who don't care about football we will talk about the cultural impacts of football but i do want to say a&m is one of the most emotional football teams in all of college football maybe all of football period and i think they how do you know this Thomas? i've been to an a&m football game and i have uh, i'm married to an aggie and i've got has surrounded me with aggies for many years and well a&m may not have the most most emotional football team i think they very clearly have the most most emotional fan base of any football team and when a&m tries to do what's called the spread offense the tempo offense which is what is popular in texas uh, they just run out of steam. <laughs> Once they get to the fourth quarter, they are so exhausted. They've been playing with so much emotion for three whole quarters that they just can't play that fourth quarter. And the problem with football is that it doesn't matter who wins the first three quarters. It only matters who wins the fourth quarter. So the classic story of A&M football, in fact, it's a meme, it's a joke, it's what's expected is for them to win up until the fourth quarter and then they run out of steam they stop winning and they lose. In fact, when I spent my $500 to take my wife to a, or my then girlfriend to an Aggie game, because I wanted to appreciate her um, Aggie-ness as we were, you know, dating, uh, we went to an A&M football game and wouldn't you know it, they were winning the whole game until the end when they lost at the very final minutes. And I felt like I had gotten my money's worth from that Aggie football game. I was like, <laughs> yes, this is what I've been told always happens. And sure enough, it happens. And AM now has a new coach who's using a new offensive style, which is very slow and deliberate and eats up a lot of game clock. And it allows the defense to rest and the fan base to rest. Because while Aggies are the most disciplined fan base, they are also exceptionally, or sorry, one of the most emotional fan bases. They're also exceptionally disciplined. And when it's time to be quiet and let the offense 
run the ball or move the ball down the field, they get quiet. They get like shockingly quiet. The stadium is is so quiet when the offense is on because they're all storing up their energy for when the defense is on. So I think this change is a particularly good change to the pro-style offense, specifically taking into account the nature of the A&M fan base. The, the fans just can't cheer with as much ferocity in the fourth quarter as they have been all of the rest of the game when it's a four and a half hour spread offense game. But when it's a shorter, more focused game, I think they have some hope. We'll see how they do against Clemson. We're recording this before the Clemson game. So uh, I, I will not at all be surprised if AM gets completely obliterated uh, on Saturday, but time will tell. Yeah, uh, Clemson's going to be a tough test. They're the number two team in the nation, and that's and yeah, we we played uh, we played an opponent. Uh, I don't remember who they were. It's one of those uh, power puff first games where you know you go out there to test your strategy, and so of course we dominated, we creamed them, um, and it was a it was a good show. And you always want to start off those first games where you play ranked opponents. One team's always going to walk around, walk away really, really sad. So a powerhouse versus a powerhouse. One team's going to walk around, uh, walk away sad, demotivated, and it's going to set the, the tone for their whole season. Those are those are tough ways to start your season. But if you get in there, you play one of those D two schools, and you know you you know you're going to win, and you're just kind of testing out some of your uh your 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 theories and your changes and how you're going to play. It's kind of a better way to go, in my opinion, and what I've noticed in, in football. Unless you're that powerhouse team that wins the first game, in which case, if you don't come away with a lot of injuries, you're going to be all right. UT, the Texas Longhorns, yes, they did play football this weekend. Uh, I can I can vouch for the fact that they did play football this weekend. <laughs> it was technically it. a game, and it was technically football. <laughs> it was technically football. No, they actually played a, a pretty good game. It when it was it was neck and neck until the end. It was definitely they were not obliterated. They they came to play ball. They did play ball, and uh, they just they just got beat in the end. And they actually played decent ball against uh, Maryland, which is a, a pretty good team. So um, so yeah, but you know therein lies the problem with Cadillac coaches. And so I'm going to shift the topic a little bit here. Still around football, but the price that we as a society pay for football. So, for example, you know, AM and UT both have new football coaches. AM paid, uh, signed a contract last year with Jimbo Fisher, who is expected to, uh, to be a winning coach. He's got a reputation as being a winning coach. He's uh, previously won a national championship. So, AM has paid this man 70 million dollars over the course of 10 years, a 10-year contract, $7 million a year, $70 million to come and coach college football. And if you think really long and hard about this, it's really interesting to see where, because if the way capitalism works is the society by the nature of capitalism will allocate resources to what society holds dear, to whatever gets money. So, for example, in news, all the flashy, terrible news stories get a lot of publicity because, you know, that's the human brain wraps its, its brain or, or the human mind wraps its brain around uh, that death and destruction. And that's what gets the ad dollars. That's what get the clicks. That's what get the money. Same thing for football. Um, you know, people watch football. And so football gets our attention. It's a national pastime. It's so uh, it's 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 just it's an American culture. Uh, more so, in my opinion, than, than any other sport, including baseball, which is uh, very American in origin as well. So, $70 million 
for a football coach. That is what society values. And Texas A&M, and we're not talking about you know public dollars here. We're talking about the Texas A&M Foundation, which is, I believe, a nonprofit organization, which a bunch of really stinking rich Aggies get together and pour their money into so that we can go off and buy these Cadillac coaches. So all of these, what we call big money ags, all these oil rich Aggies, they want so badly to be able to brag to their University of Texas brethren and buddies at back at the hunting, uh, back at the hunting camp that AM won a national championship that they are willing to fork over millions of dollars to make it happen. And so it's just a really interesting reflection on American culture. And I'm going to get your thoughts on that, Thomas, before we move uh, right on into Colin Kaepernick, which is directly related to this topic. Yeah, because technically college coaches are government employees if they're for a state university. So while not all of the money necessarily comes from tax money, right, the football program brings in money. If you were to do a report of the highest paid public employee in 39 out of the 50 states, according to the Business Insider, the highest paid public employee is a coach, a football coach or a basketball coach, and not even close to like the next highest paid position. So we're talking coaches that are making upwards of $4 million a year uh, for coaching. Uh, and I think A&M's coach is making even more than that. He, it was a 10-year contract for how much? $70 million, you said? $60 million? Uh, I think yeah, I think it's seventy million. I'm gonna, I'm gonna Google it real quick to make sure I got my number straight. But it's a lot of stinking money. If that's correct, that's seven million dollars a year. So this six this two year old article is out of bounds by two whole million dollars. And to give you some comparison, United States presidents are paid four hundred thousand dollars a year. So we're talking we value monetarily our. So Barack Obama made four hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, that's what Trump is making if he deposits the money. Uh, we are make paying 10 times more money for a college coach, not like the one college coach of the state, because remember, Texas has multiple highly paid college coaches. Uh, we pay 10 times more money for a college football coach than we do for a United States president, if that tells you anything about where our priorities are uh, as a nation. <laughs> and the, and you're exactly right. It, the reason why they're paid so much is because the donors are donating because they want the bragging rights at the country club that their team won. Uh, college football coaches make more than NFL coaches, <laughs> which is crazy. Like you'd think NFL, that's where you make more money. But all the money, I guess, that would have gone to the players in college football all goes to the coaches instead. Yeah. So, and this is the way I feel. And I think a lot of people feel this way, especially people who went to college. They care more about their college team. And I find college football to be more entertaining than professional football. Um, and what those athletes can do at the professional level is absolutely insane. But at the same time, you just don't see, in my opinion, the heart. Um, the Because all of the kids that are playing college football, all of them, every single last one, want nothing more than to be a professional football player. And they're all, and it's a very thin, it's a very thin, um, what's the word I'm trying to say? It's a very thin funnel to get through. Um, there's a lot of very talented athletes and there's only so much money to go around. There's only so many roster spots on the professional team and they're all competing for these spots. And so if you want to get to these spots, you have to just give it your all 
uh, push through as hard as you can in order to get one of those professional football spots. So I think there's a lot more heart in college football than there is necessarily in professional football where those players have quote unquote already made it. Now that's not an absolute. There's are some really interesting professional football games, but uh, especially my alma mater and my fan base, Texas A&M Aggies, Aggies love their team pretty much more than uh, any other sport in this world. Aggie football reigns supreme in Aggieland. And you might go out there and you might watch some pro football. You might watch the Texans. You might watch the Cowboys, whatever your flavor is. But uh, there's just nothing, nothing in this world that compares to Aggie football for Aggies. And I know there are so many college teams out there that have the exact same opinion. And I think that's what drives all this money. So, I mean, whether it's dollars that uh, 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 Nike or somebody else can spend on or that make on uh, players by making jerseys and, and, and university memorabilia and the universities themselves, which, of course, license uh, its own logo and uh, they want their football teams to do well. Uh, and Thomas and I both have uh, relatives who are in academia and, um, and, and a topic of conversation I think that we both had among our academic uh, university hired uh, relatives is how they loathe the idea that universities are so wrapped up in football and how football and sports and really athletics as a whole reign supreme in most major universities. But at the same time, it brings in so much money that it actually does a service to the rest of academia because it probably brings in money and grants and research dollars just for the sh- uh, just because of a football team brings in research dollars that it does good for the rest of academics. So it's a very weird dynamic at play, but sports really does do great things for universities and they just make so much stinking money off of it. And from there, I think Thomas, we should segue into old Colin Kaepernick and Nike. Speaking of dollars, uh, so oh, go ahead. But real quick, uh, correction. I went on the coach's salary. I looked it up, and the top NFL coaches are paid more than the top college coaches. But uh, there are college coaches that make more than NFL coaches. So, for instance, A and M's new coach makes more than the Dallas Cowboys coach. So it's a Venn diagram. It's more complicated than I made it sound. Uh, but we're talking similar levels of money, uh, college and professional. Uh, so just a real quick uh, correction on that. And on the academic benefits, I have a uh, uncle who's a professor at A&M. And he used to be a professor at OU. And I was like, if there's anyone who's not going to get into Aggie football, it's going to be this guy. you know, Because he had spent so much time uh, being in, at OU. But you know what? Aggieland's spirit is so strong. Uh, within the last few years, he started really caring about the football games and going. And he's a big-time enough pre- professor where I think he gets season tickets to the games and and he gets invited to like the dean's boxes and all that. He he got sucked in too. So. Everybody gets <laughs> anyway. sucked in. Uh, but I do want to talk about Col- yeah, I do want to talk about Colin Kaepernick and the fu- uh, future of football as a sport because it may be that our grandchildren will not be able to watch football. That it will be like cockfighting or horse racing or some other sport that isn't really celebrated into the future. So for those of you who don't know, Colin Kaepernick is famous for kneeling during the national anthem and making most football fans angry. So while the um, population is split kind of 50-50 on Colin Kaepernick, maybe more people supporting him than not, actually. Of football fans, it's very clear, football fans do not like that. The kind of people who watch football are the kind of people who are big fans of the flag and of the kind of... uh, 
lip service ways that we honor the Fet flag and, and they don't appreciate what he's doing. And uh, Nike has just signed Colin Kaepernick uh, to a big deal where it's going to make Colin Kaepernick their next spokesperson. And uh, I will say as a marketing person, I see this as a really savvy move because just by signing Kaepernick, Nike is getting millions of dollars, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars of free publicity. Everyone is talking about Nike right now. And every time somebody burns their Nike, some Trump person burns their Nike shoes and it makes the news, that's more coverage for Nike. Remember, Nike never fired uh, Tiger Woods as their spokesperson for golf after all of Tiger Woods' scandals. Nike's brand is not a, we are a righteous brand and we uphold you know traditional values. That's not their brand. That's not who they claim to be. And so when they sign somebody who is dramatic or controversial, it's not violating their brand. If Coca-Cola were to sign Nike it, or uh, Colin Kaepernick, it would be a disaster because <laughs> it would bring all of this conflict with this brand they've spent so long building of being traditional values and pro-America, blah, blah, blah. But for Nike, I think it's a really savvy move. What are your thoughts, Dustin? Uh, I agree with you. It's going to get them a lot of attention. Um, And as far as pure marketing and word of mouth, it's going to do great things. But I don't know if Nike really fully understands the social dynamic of what they're doing. Or maybe they do and they don't care and they're making a calculated move. But basically what you have is you have a division of America right now. Um, And and we've talked about it several times, but I think one of the uh, best ways, and it's more complicated than this. And so I'm oversimplifying it by, uh, by magnitudes, but you have Trump's America versus the anti-Trump's America. Um, And the Colin Kaepernick's of the world and those that support him say it's not about the flag. It's not about you know the military and veterans. It's about police brutality um, and speaking out against uh, police brutality and bringing attention to uh, police br- police brutality specifically against uh, people of color. And I think in Colin Kaepernick's uh, world, he's specifically thinking about uh, black Americans. So um, they are very much enraptured with this idea of this this big bad jackbooted gestapo police force across the nation and they're targeting black people and they wake up in the morning and they eat racist cheerios and they they bleed racism and every cop is racist um and i experienced this a lot of these types of individuals as a police officer myself and not just black people you know white people hispanic people they just no matter what you do no matter what you say or how good of a job you try to do, in your eyes, you're a cop and you represent something that in their brain is just racist and has been anti-black, anti-Hispanic, anti-color uh, for eons. Um, and so that's what really what it boils down to. And reading all these Twitter fights um, to get a gist of you know the, 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 the size of the debate, that's what I really... I've determined that it boils down to you have the people on the right that say, you know, no, I'm pro police. Police are doing a great job. You know, police officers are nothing more than people who grew up in our own neighborhoods and they're going out there and trying to do great things. And then you have the other side who said what I already said is, you know, police officers are all evil. And of course the truth is very much in between. Um, There's definitely bad police officers out there. There's great police officers out there and they're human beings and they are of this community. So, but that, that's what Colin Kaepernick's, thing it really comes down to. So as far getting back to Nike and their calculated marketing move, I 
don't know. Their stock's down. I think it's down 3% today. That may be negligible in, in the long run. Who knows? Um, but I don't know in the long run if Nike's move is really going to be that great for them. Because, I mean, I guess if you're aligning yourself with the anti-cop crowd, then yeah, it's a great move. And that's who you want to sell to. Um, but then you are alienating probably because 50% of this nation did vote for Trump around 50%, I should say. That's, that's kind of uh, estimating there. But, uh, you know, that's you're alienating 50% of this entire nation by picking a side in this debate. Um, and I just don't know how smart of a move that is. What do you think about Thomas? So you're thinking of things, you're not thinking uh, as in terms of a marketer. It's you're not, when you're creating a brand, especially a strong brand like Nike, you're not creating a brand for everyone. And brands are as much about exclusion as they are about inclusion, who you don't allow into your store um, because of your pricing or because you just, you know, make people uncomfortable, it says more about your brand often than who you do allow in your store. So for instance, Hot Topic, no, uh, Abercrombie and Fitch often will pl- play um, music in such a way that it irritates old people, like specifically crafted uh, acoustically to make old people uncomfortable in the store. And by old, I mean like over the age of 30. So I think I'd be included in this. I was at the mall and I wanted to visit an Abercrombie and Fitch just as a marketer to see what they were doing. And my wife just could not get herself to go into the store. Like they had done such a good job excluding her through their marketing, through their branding that they genu- that they succeeded, right? They are not trying to appeal to us. We're not in their target audience. And that is the whole appeal of their brand. So think about the kind of person who buys a Nike product. They're younger. They're very young. Their primary demographic is a certain kind of young man who buys sneakers every month. And they're, you know, Nike's constantly coming out with new sneakers that are limited runs. And this young man buys that sneaker, uh, much more likely to be ethnically diverse, uh, but or to be very much kind of politically aligned with the, you know, cops are bad and they shouldn't be doing these terrible things. And their biggest threat, Nike's biggest threat, the company that's going after this exact same market is Under Armour. And Under Armour's done a great job resonating with that urban market of athletes. And suddenly Nike is really taking the hit. And you know, I don't think a lot of good old boys and I don't think a lot of baby boomers, because remember, uh, Trump's support is predominantly amongst older people, people over the age of 40. And Nike customers are predominantly people below the age of 25 and really below the age of 20. When you're buying lots of athletic products, specifically Nike branded athletic products, you're not buying it to go run the treadmill in the gym. That's not why you buy Nike shoes. You're buying Nike shoes because you're in high school. Um and that group is who they're trying to appeal to with this Just Do It campaign. So I think this is actually a savvy move. Uh, it is, you know, they are claiming a side, so they are going to lose some market. So the question is, what they lose amongst Trump supporters, will that be made up for and what they gain in Trump haters? And I, I suspect that it probably will work out. I think they're going to gain more than they lose. Uh, and this is the same thing we see when conservatives will like boycott CNN. 
that's of no value because you already don't watch CNN. <laughs> so you boycotting CNN isn't taking any money away from CNN. You already effectively chose to boycott CNN when you switched over to Fox News. And if you have not bought a Nike product in five years, your quote unquote boycott isn't going to make any difference. And I think that as they do the research, they'll find that that pans out, that the 55 year old Trump man, Trump voting man who hasn't bought a Nike product in 20 years, his boycott you know, and him finding some shoes to burn isn't going to make much of a difference to their bottom line. So I don't necessarily agree with or disagree with any of your overarching points, you know, as far as a marketing standpoint, as far as exclusion. And I understand the theoretical basis behind all of that. I, I can't help but think that maybe Nike shooting them in the, themselves in the foot still, because I have a set of Nike shoes sitting in my closet that I bought when I was a cop. And I didn't buy them because they had a swoosh on them. I bought them because I went to several uh, outlet stores who had sales on shoes. And these shoes were black. And I needed black shoes for my uniform. And I needed something I could uh, ride a bicycle in. And they were on sale. And they worked great. And they've been great shoes. And I've I've used them for a few years now. Um, Now, it's going to be time for me very shortly to go buy a new set of shoes. And I'm going to have to think to myself... Do I, you know, is this Nike swoosh thing, you know, what am I aligning myself to? Because I, what, I, what I will say as a police officer is I can tell you that, and, and just as a student of humanity, people dress according to uh, what group they want to be identified with. Um, so, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a country cowboy, you wear cowboy boots. If, uh, and that's how you dress to identify yourself as a specific person. If, uh, if, if you are an urban kid who wants to be uh, identified with a hip-hop crowd, you know, you're going to sag your pants, you're going to wear a certain type of blue jean, you're going to wear a certain type of uh, hoodie and a certain type of shoe. And maybe Nike takes that. Um, but I, So I, I say all that to say to the point that I am not certain that your position is correct. I am not certain that your position is incorrect. I am really just going to be interested to watch the whole thing go down. Um, because you know you could be one hundred percent spot on, Thomas, and it's a great move for Nike. And uh, I'm I, I could be that could be the case, but I'm not convinced at this point that it's also not a terrible move. So, um, time will tell. Because and what one of the reasons that I think it might be a bad move is because let's talk. Let's bring it back to football for a second. Let's talk about the future of football in this nation. Um. And of course, they're they're not totally related, so I'm I'm kind of going off on on, on on tangents. But we're talking about the future of this nation and where the nature the nation is headed and where brands are headed. I and I don't know. It, it's a it's a tough one to really decipher. But we feel very divided right now. And to pick one side over the other, I think uh, it could be a very calculated smart move. But you could also be shooting yourself in the foot. And it's just going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, when it comes to the future of football, I think the biggest existential threat to football is not politics entering the football field. I feel like this is something that football can handle. It may hurt their ratings, but I think that in general, people still want to watch football somehow. And the NFL will find a solution that kind of gives them the biggest possible audience moving forward. I think the existential threat to football as a sport is the fact that that playing it causes permanent brain injury. And the evidence for this seems to be pretty conclusive. And there's already a movement to ban it. So the strategy for banning football over the next 40 years is first you ban it in middle school, 
which is already starting to happen. A lot of middle schools don't have football because it's really damaging on young brains. And then you ban it in high school and then you later ban it in college. And then last in last, it gets banned in the NFL where the, you know, they pass laws that either get rid of football altogether or make it such that the rules are changed. So it's not really football anymore because of trying to protect uh, the head. And the NFL has been very conscious of this movement and you know, people like Malcolm Gladwell, who are very outspoken against football as a sport. Um, and the, the fact that, you know, why should a academic institution play, promote a sport that causes brain injury? It seems to be a violation of the very essence of what it means to be an academic institution where your brain is developed and you're made to be smarter and more educated and you know, have a broader view of the world and you're getting con constant low-level concussions that causes parts of your brain to deteriorate and even fade away altogether where you go crazy and lose control of your own emotions because of the fact that you play football. In that, you know, all of these scandals with football players being aggressively violent, there is some discussion in the academic community, scientific community, that this may be connected with these uh, uh, CTC, CEC. Um, it's a can I forget what, exactly what the letters are, but it's the brain injury, the you know continual brain injury that they have that it makes them more violent people. And I will say football as a sport already selects for violence. <laughs> so, a, you know, a peaceful person isn't going to be drawn to the game of football. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out as the evidence becomes more clear. Will it be like smoking where, the, you know, the fact that smoking is bad for you is very clear, but we're like, well, it's your choice to smoke as you want to, if you want to, as long as you're you know over 18. Once you're an adult, if you choose to poison your body with smoke, you can do it as long as you don't do it somewhere where your secondhand smoke is going to bother somebody else. Uh, I, I see that being a possibility, but you know, that gets rid of high school football. A high school student is not an adult and can't choose whether or not he wants to take on permanent brain injury. And if you get rid of high school football, suddenly your college football players aren't as good because they haven't been practicing in high school and the sport deteriorates just through lack of excellence. Dustin? So, um, so when, when we switched back, you said that uh, it's not going to be the politics uh, that destroys football. It's going to be the science behind it. And actually, I think it's going to be both because I think the science behind it is going to be very, very political. Um, so now we're talking about um, the government removing football from its schools because the science is very, it's very firm on the fact that you know football screws up your head. I won't allow my kids to play football for that exact reason because it, it rattles your brain. No matter how good the helmet technology gets, um, it does not. It, it will not prevent your brain uh, when you hit something going as fast as you as you could possibly go, and that other something is going as fast as it can go, and you collide head on. Guess what happens to your brain inside your head? It keeps moving. And it collides against your skull and it bruises a little bit and it bleeds a little bit. And you do this over and over and over and over again. Eventually you have enough start, uh, scar tissue and dead brain matter in there that it affects the way that, uh, that that you think. I mean, just think Muhammad Ali and how many times he got hit in the head and the terrible death that he endured because of it. So, yeah, I mean, football is is very, very bad for you, much like being a gladiator was very, very bad for you back in Roman times because, well, you know, that was a fight to the death. But yeah, so, um, and 
to bring it back to the politics, as I was discussing, is football is very much a part of our American culture. Think of going back to what we started this show on, how much money goes into football. You know, there's a lot of money in basketball. There's a lot of money in baseball. But there's so much money wrapped up in advertisements and and, and, and merchandise, so much money wrapped up with football. And now you're going to say uh, that this this piece of American identity is now, you know, against the law. That might be taking a little bit too far, but, you know, it's, it's outlawed in public schools. I don't think for a second, Thomas, that uh, even when they do take it out of public schools, because I think eventually they will, that it's going to go away. I think it'll go private. And now you're dancing. Now you're dancing on a real fine line of banning people's private activities. You're going to ban people from participating in a sport. You're you know, maybe you can call it child abuse or something like that. But now you're really touching on a sensitive topic uh, in American culture and uh, telling people what they can and cannot do in their own time, telling kids what they can and cannot do. Uh, because uh, like it or not, there is a big section, especially with the, the the poor in our nation. They don't expect to make it academically. They don't uh, expect to make it uh, in, in a large part uh, by pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. A big part of uh, urban poor and even rural poor culture is I'm going to get really good at the sport and I'm going to dig myself out of this crap hole by being good at a sport which is why you see so many parents pouring thousands of dollars of their resources into sending their, kid, their kids to these select camps uh, and, and, and go to the private coaches, what have you, to become good at a sport uh, because that's, you know, that's what they think they're going to succeed in. They don't, have, they don't think they have a chance academically, but you know what? I'm really good athletically, and that's how I'm going to pull myself out of this. So I don't think you just uh, outlaw that in American culture. Maybe over time, and I'm talking decades, maybe even centuries, football will evolve or go away. But you know, in, in contemporary culture, within the next few decades, I don't see it going anywhere because uh, I think it is such a part of America and Americans. Yeah, really, your comparison to gladiators, I think, is more spot on than you think. So a lot of people, their knowledge of gladiators, Roman gladiators, was is from the movie Gladiator, where all of the fights are to the death all the time. And that's not actually how the Colosseum worked. That's not how gladiators worked. We did some archaeology, and we dug up a gladiator school. So they had schools for gladiators. And what we found in that school for gladiators was a graveyard of gladiator bones and gladiator bodies. And if it was the way that it's portrayed in the Hollywood movies, you would not see a lot of injuries on these bodies because they would fight to the death and then they would be dead. But instead, what we found was years worth of injuries that had healed. And very often, the gladiator battles amongst professional gladiators would be into the blood until one gladiator drew blood. So they died a lot and it was not a safe um, profession by any means uh, but it wasn't necessarily where 20 men enter the the arena and only one man survives uh, like it always is portrayed uh, by Hollywood I've never seen it not portrayed that way and I get it it's more dramatic and you can have the actors pretend to die on, on screen uh, now it was that way sometimes one of the way when they would use gladiatorial combats as a way of executing um, prisoners and as a way of executing prisoners of war. So if they just won some big battle and they brought in a thousand you know, prisoners of war, they'd have them fight to the death. Uh, and that, that really would be to the death. But 
in general. It was for entertainment. And sure, it was dangerous. And sure, people died sometimes. But it, in general, they just got hurt. They didn't die. And at that point, you're like, well, gosh, that's a lot like college football. <laughs> it's like, well, people don't die that often. I mean, yeah, that guy died a couple weeks ago, but it's rare. Normally, they just get injured. I mean, suddenly, this is a distinction without much of a difference. It's just a distinction in, in type. It's a distinction in kind. And it was, you know, Christians, ultimately, that brought an end to the gladiatory, gladiatorial combat saying it's wrong that man should kill man for the pleasure of, of other men. And I don't, and so I'm kind of conflicted on this because I genuinely enjoy football and I enjoy the violence of football. And I, I'm, you know, thinking, is this something I should feel guilty about? Is this something I should not do as a Christian? And I do think that there is a difference between something where it's primarily about death and killing and football, which seems to be quite a bit more separated. So it is a lot safer than being in a gladiatorial arena. So somebody would die in every gladiatorial fight. It's not like it was perfectly safe. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, I think that it would be nice if it were made safer. And, I'm you know, both UT and A&M had players ejected for targeting. And I fully support that. Like, often people are like, oh, how dare you eject a player for targeting? It's like, no, you can't target somebody's head with your head. It's not just bad for them. It's bad for you. And those kinds of changes to make it safer. I don't feel like making helmets better is making it safer because the safer the helmets get, the more players tend to use those helmets as battering rams, uh, I've noticed. So in rugby, where there are no helmets, it's about as dangerous as football, where there are super amazing magical helmets. And it's because the rugby players make an effort to protect their heads, whereas football players use their uh, heads kind of like rams do in, like the goats, you know, and they bat batter each other and they like crash into each other's horns. Uh, that's how um, American football players use their helmets. It's like, oh, I've got some horns on my head. And those will crash into the next guy and knock him back and keep them from getting the first down. So I, I would not be surprised if eventually the social justice warriors uh, of the world focus their attention on football as an evil sport for the damage that it does the players. And just, I will just want to say, you heard it here first, folks. If you've not heard this, <laughs> you've not heard that this is a discussion. It's going to be a discussion, not of this decade, but probably of the next decade. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting perspective, Thomas, because uh, like I said earlier, you know, with people of color, Football, sports in general, is seen as a way out of their own poverty. So it's uh, it'll be an interesting discussion for social justice warriors. You know, may, uh, are they going to say that you know um, uh, the 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 elite of this nation is just subjugating um, you know the the minority class by making them their their modern day gladiators? And I think that kind of discussion has happened always on the fringes of football, but nobody takes it really seriously because we all watch, enjoy watching football so much. It's a, it's a guilty pleasure for all of us, even those who won't let our own kids play football. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a very, it'll be interesting to watch to say the least. Yeah. Cause becoming a gladiator was a way to go from poverty to wealth. You could go from being a prisoner on death row to being a celebrity a wealthy celebrity celebrated by the entire city through the gladiatorial arena. It was a way from going from the bottom of society to the toppest echelons of society. When Julius Caesar um, was putting people into the Senate, some of the people he was putting into the Senate were gladiators. Like you could become a patrician through this use of the sword. Like talk about uh, social mobility. 
Um, in fact, I think if, in, if I'm from remembering correctly, when he was killed, he had a few gladiators like near him that didn't uh, were, had to be distracted or something uh, for the senators to come in and, and stab him. If, if I'm remembering my Roman history correctly, uh, but you can all correct me if, if I am wrong. Uh, Dustin, do you have any final thoughts on football? If you, Let me just put it this way. Will football exist in 20, 20, uh, 2058? Yes or no? Uh, yes, you know, I think it will exist in its current form. Who knows? You know, I'm not that confident in predicting the future, but I think it's, I think it's still going to be around. I think high school football will be gone by then. I think college football might be gone by then. I think the NFL will still exist in 2058. Uh, but when we get to episode 5,000 of the Liberty Buzzard, if we're still doing this and the, uh, all that time in the future, we can check to see if our prognostications were correct. Uh, we would like to know what you think. Is football an evil sport? Is it something that you enjoy? Uh, do you think that will last? What do you think about a Nike and Colin Kaepernick? And do you think UT will be able to win any games this season? Sound off at libertybuzzard.com forward slash 035. And do check us out on Facebook and on YouTube. You can leave a review uh, or a comment in those places as well. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. I'm Dustin the Aggie Hammett. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. This episode of Liberty Buzzard is brought to you by Tom Umstadt CPA. Tom has over 35 years of experience helping people like you pay only their fair share in taxes. Don't let the IRS stress you out. Get Tom and his team on your team at TaxmanTom.com.